to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. As you turn there, I, uh, I wanted to ask a question, and that is simple. It's a very simple, easy question. Do you think the world looks broken? It's pretty easy. Most of us in this room are in agreement and just say, yes, the world is broken. We look at the leadership of our world, and we go, broken. We look at the people who are trying to press leadership one way or another, and we go, broken. We look at the infrastructure of our earth, and we go, broken. Most of the time, we consider the world to be broken, even if we have a positive bent where we say, no, the people of God are pressing and we're moving forward. Even if we have that positive bent, we're moving forward because the world is broken. So we see these things and, and they can be very disheartening. <laughs> Indeed, if you spend any time talking about politics with anyone, you will be disheartened by the state of our world. Not just our country. I, I want to be clear. It's not just U.S. It's everywhere. Um, a few years ago, a particular prime minister was voted into power in India, and that prime minister was part of a radical Hindu sect that liked to kill and murder people. He was voted in as their prime minister. Um, then in England, you got a guy who is uh, currently in charge of their parliament who intentionally messes up his hair and says goofy things to the press to make himself look like a fool on purpose so he can manipulate the media. Then in Germany, you've got this back and forth over whether or not life matters or not. In Iceland, they voted to be able to murder babies freely all the way to when they're born. In uh, the countries in Africa, you got all kinds of issues going on, from tribal warfare to warlords taking over places to uh, constant government regime changes. In China, well, they're communist, and freedom of religion doesn't exist. And so you have churches being torn down left and right, even when the churches are doing social good. In North Korea, no one knows what's going on because you can't see inside the country because they're crazy. Some of the greatest bastions for Christianity in the world have political corruption throughout. Um, Taiwan, I don't know if you know, but Taiwan and, and South Korea are both strongly Christian nations, and yet... When you examine their political structures, there is corruption at every level. So the world seems to be in trouble. Now the positive of this is that this is not abnormal. This has been the norm since the beginning of time. Since man ate the fruit, this has been the norm. God has had a hand actively involved in the world, restraining evil, and yet he has allowed evil to exist. I said that very carefully. He has allowed evil to exist. 
He has restrained evil with his hand. We saw that in Romans chapter 1, that he is constantly restraining evil, but that he allows it to exist. And it seems to persist often in our mind in a consuming rate where we can't get away from it. And yet, we stand as people of God, hearing the voice of God, and looking at God's trajectory, and we can look at the world with utter confidence and say, He is going to fix it. He is going to redeem. And this world will be rescued in every sense of the word. And that he is going to punish injustice and the wicked are going to be punished. And there's going to be a large portion of the wicked who are going to repent and be saved by Jesus Christ and rescued by him. So, with that in mind, this is why we come to this passage at Christmas, every year, because the Gospel of Luke quotes it, and John uh, alludes to it, and the Gospel of John and Matthew quotes it, that this is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus has come, a child is born. So let's read together, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, I didn't write a poem for you today, and part of the reason I didn't is because this passage is too great. And my poetry would fall tremendously short of explaining it. So, just look at how beautiful this is. 
from a poetic standpoint first. Right? You've got this picture of light and dark. And the people who walked in darkness, everything here is past tense. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's all past tense. They've seen this great light. This light has overcome. And then you've got this strange juxtaposition of talking about his people and the enemies. His people and the enemies. You've got, you have multiplied the nation. That's God's people. You have multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Nobody, nobody would deny that this is a jubilant, joyful, triumphant, warlike victory. He's using these, this terminology of war, and then he says, the yoke of his burden. So not only did you increase the joy and increase harvest at the time of the feast of harvest, not only did you increase harvest, but you've also brought Joy and freedom from slavery, the yoke of his burden, the slavery that once held him, the staff for his shoulder, that, that rod which beat him, that rod which beat him into submission, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it. As in the day of Midian, and he references Gideon's battle with the Midianites. Do you remember what happens there? Gideon has this massive army, and God says it's too many. And he says... Well, okay, how do I divide them? So he has them take them out and does this weird thing with the water and whoever laps it like a dog stays. And it's basically, Gideon ends up with 300 guys to face an army of a couple thousand, and he wins. And how does he win? By holding up modern-day flashlight, uh, the equivalent of a modern-day flashlight, and breaking a pot and screaming out loud. And everybody goes crazy in the camp, and the camp of Midian destroys itself. Weirdest battle in history. There's not another battle in history that I know of where an army that's one-tenth the size of the army they're facing wins by yelling, For the Lord, as fail. For the Lord. And everybody in the camp murders themselves. Doesn't make any sense. This is clearly God. So he references this beautiful picture of God's redemption, removing slavery. The, and, and get this, the, the one who enslaved them, Midian, in this, this reference, Midian destroys itself. Like they don't... They don't Israel doesn't have to go destroy anything. They don't have to fight back. Midian does it all by themselves. They, they destroy their own army. It's incredible. They destroy their own army with, with, with no provocation other than yelling and torches. Flashlights and a pot that gets broken. Well, 300 pots that get broken. But still, a pot broken on the ground. Well, they yell... So then, verse 5, you've got this end of all wars for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. What a beautiful line. Every boot of the warrior in battle tumult. Even in English, that's beautiful. In Hebrew, it's incredible, this, this phrasing. 
battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. These are the accoutrements of war. The garments that you'd have on when you were fighting the, that has stained blood on it. The accoutrements of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. They're all going to be burned. They're all going to be burned up. And then here's the reason. For to us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justiceness and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this poem ends with, the king is coming, war will cease, and the king is coming, and he's coming how? As a child. As a child. For unto us a child is born. It's beautiful, beautiful poetic verse here by the prophet. And so, let's examine this from the perspective of one who's seen it. Because we have the privilege of having seen Jesus coming. Remember, Isaiah is looking at prophecy from a distance. He's looking at these prophecies as one who sees a mountain peak. And there are multiple mountain peaks, but he sees this big mountain range, and it looks like one giant mountain to him. So sometimes he's referencing things that are long way off from even us. And sometimes he's referencing things that are immediate. And sometimes he's referencing both. But according to the Gospel of Luke, this one we have seen. We've seen. So, let's start at the beginning. He's ending this prophecy. This uh, Verse 1 really completes the end of chapter 8. And in order to understand that, you have to, you have to grasp that Isaiah is in Israel, and he's looking out across northern Israel. He's in Judah, southern, southern, the southern country. And he's looking out across northern Israel, and he sees Assyria is coming, and Assyria is wiping them out, and Assyria is going to come to our gates, to the gates of Judah at some point. And there is going to be destruction for the northern kingdom. And then they're going to come to us, to the southern kingdom, to Judah. And so he's staring out, kind of looking at this, this thing happening in the world. And he's going, oh no, now you need to get some geographical references here. Galilee is at the top of Israel. If you can imagine a map of Israel, it's just imagine this. There's sea over here. Well, let's see, for you guys. There's a sea over here, Mediterranean Sea. Then over here you've got uh, the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. You with me? Okay, this is in general the map. So the Sea of Mediterranean Sea is over here, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee is up here, Assyria is over here. So Assyria, in order to come to Israel goes along a river basin that comes this way, and then goes across and over the Sea of Galilee. They are passing through the Galilee region, what Isaiah calls Galilee of the Nations. Now, because Galilee was on the northern border of 
all of God's people, Israel and Judah, because it's on the northern border of that, a lot of Gentiles lived there. A lot of people from various cultures lived there. Galilee was always kind of looked down as this, looked down on as kind of the gateway into Israel. You, you crossed by Galilee and you entered into Israel and when you crossed by, you were bound to find a great many people who were not Jewish. A great much, a great deal of people who were multiple different ethnic groups in Galilee. Remind yourself, this is part of the reason that when the Jews see all the disciples from Galilee, not only from Galilee, but fishermen, men who work with their hands and don't have a lot of education, this they would go, why are we listening to these guys? They're from Galilee. They're not even from Jerusalem. They're not from the place where all the religious elite live. They're not at all uh, upstanding, righteous people. They're cursing fishermen with raw hands that work with their hands day in and day out who are rough around the edges and often rough right in the middle. So these Galileans are at the top, right? And you've got this picture here. And so Isaiah, looking out across this, sees Assyria coming. And in chapter 8 goes, they're coming, we're in trouble. Israel is in trouble. But God is good, and he will redeem, and he will rescue. Isaiah always ends with redemption and rescue. And then here in verse 1, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Beautiful picture. He, he talks about his wife giving birth to a child in chapter 8. And then he comes here and he talks about there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The pain of childbearing comes to Mark here. And so in chapter 9 he starts talking about the pain of childbearing. And then you jump down and he says for unto us a child is born. In verse 6. That matters a great deal and we're going to get to it in just a second. The, in the former time he, bought, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where was Jesus' ministry? Galilee. On this border between God's people and the Gentiles of the world. And what does Jesus say? What does Paul say of Jesus in Ephesians? He has taken us and made us one people. The people of God are now those who trust in Jesus Christ for righteousness. Galilee of the nations, there has become a light that has landed on Galilee. And those who walked in darkness, who walked in utter darkness, now see life. Jesus has come and redemption has landed. And we have a nation, a kingdom that has been made at the borderland between God's people and the people of the world. That all peoples, all tribes and tongues and nations could come before him and stand before him in worship of the most high God who they couldn't before. This is incredible. Then he 
goes on here and in verse 2 starts this poem, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now where did that darkness begin? It began in Genesis chapter 3 when man turns and eats the fruit. Man being man and woman, generic, right? They turn and eat the fruit and they reject God's call. They reject God's law. They reject all that God is and they say, I'm going to I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to do what seems right in my eyes. I'm going to be just and right in my eyes and do what I think is right. I'm not listening to God. That's, in a nutshell, sin. They take what seems right to them and what would be a delight to their mouth, and they eat, proclaiming with their mouth and with their eyes that this is good. When God has said it is not. So they reject God entirely. And in that rejection, they begin to, darkness washes over the whole world, and they can't see God. So Isaiah paints this picture of a land of great darkness, and he paints it in Galilee, where the Jews and the world meet. There is great darkness here. No hope, darkness, emptiness, and it is a land that has not been able to see the light of God. This beautiful picture, poetry, that is also terrifying. They walk in darkness. And then it says this past tense, have seen a great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah is standing here looking out at the mountain range and he sees the peak and he's describing the people, get this, he's describing the people on the next peak looking back at the first peak. This is incredible. He's not describing the first peak here. He's describing people who believe in the first peak. He's looking out at the mountain now, and he's going, there's, there's people who walked past tense in darkness, who have seen a great light. Who is that? That's us. We are those who walked in darkness, who have seen a great light. I don't tell you that you show up in the Bible often, but this is one of them. This is one of those times where God went out of his way to let Isaiah see you. Gentiles on the land, on the borderland between God's people and the world. And he looks out and he sees they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. There's a beautiful story by R.C. Sproul that I like to read to my kids called The Lightlings. If you don't have it, I would commend, I would commend it to you. It's a fantastic book. And in this book, he talks about the, these fairy creatures that live in a forest. It's all allegory, but he talks about these fairy creatures that live in a forest and, and they were children of the light at one point and they sinned against that light, and then ran away and hid in the darkness, and the light that they had slowly diminished to nothing, where they were stumbling around in the dark. And then one day, the children see this glow off in the distance. And they go to find the son of the king of light has been born 
to a virgin. And as they get closer to that light, and as they see the light, they themselves begin to glow again. And they begin to see. And all of a sudden, there's no longer darkness around those who have trusted in this light. And there are still those who stay in darkness. The land of darkness still exists. And it's still there. But these people, these, these creatures, these lightlings have the light of life within them. And so this beautiful picture is, is taken directly from this idea. The light has shone to them and they have, they've joined in that light. But note, the land is still dark. The light has shone on them and the land is still kind of dark around them. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness, but the light has shone on them. Indeed, listen, Christian, we live in a dark world where there is darkness everywhere. And as we said at the beginning, if you don't believe me, just bring up politics once with one person and you'll find that there is darkness everywhere. And yet the light has shone on us and then it says this of those people, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you with as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a victorious, almost militaristic language used to describe harvest, used to describe farming. So just think about that. These are people who are cultivating the land, making it more beautiful around them. And God is granting them joy and peace amidst that cultivation. Isn't it one of our church models that we cultivate beauty on this earth? We cultivate the earth because we have been designed so to do it. Isaiah points ahead and sees the peak of Christians going, we're going to make the world more beautiful, we're going to cultivate the land, we're going to cultivate the, the earth, we're going to bring beauty into the world, we're going to bring gospel life into a world that is dying, and we're going to rejoice and bring joy in the face of a dying world, knowing full well that eventually God will defeat everyone, every enemy. Every wickedness will be wiped from the earth, knowing full well that that will happen. We trust in that future, and in the present, we do what Paul tells us to do, and we rejoice in every trial. We rejoice in every struggle, for our joy is unceasing and overwhelming. And then in verse 4, he talks about why. So you've got these you got that statement, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. Joy is repeated there in Hebrew multiple times. And as they are joyful or glad when they divide the spoil, then you've got these three fours. Number one, verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the staff that beat him, the rod that used to beat him has been broken. I want you to imagine you were a slave. And you had a master who was beating you with a stick. And someone else 
showed up and took that stick from your master and snapped it and sent your master away. Said, go away. There's beautiful, beautiful picture going on here where Isaiah says, this, you had a yoke of slavery on you. You were enslaved. And there was somebody beating you with a rod to get you to do what you wanted, what they wanted you to do. And you were forced to obey. You were not given freedom. You couldn't deny it. You had to do it. And then this master, this God comes and grabs this stick. Just imagine the scene, right? It would make a beautiful movie scene. Right, a slave's being beaten and he raises his fist and this other guy's hand just grabs the stick and yanks it out of his hand and snaps it and says, get out of here. He's mine. He's not yours anymore. He's mine. And the stick is not transferred from one master to another, but is broken. It's broken. How beautiful this is, that we are granted freedom in Christ Jesus to live in holiness and righteousness, and the stick that beat us into submission has been snapped, and we are freed. Then he referenced Midian, which we talked about earlier here, and then in verse 5, you've got the second thing. So the first one is that the slavery is broken. No, all past tense. It's all past tense. Isaiah's looking at the peak, and he sees the people who are looking back at the light, and this is all past tense. Then here in verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every one of these things is burned up and torn out and thrown away. All this, the armor, the bloody, the boot, the bloody clothing, all this stuff is just taken and rolled and thrown into the fire and destroyed. This is incredible. There is no more war. There is no more death. There is only life. Only life. And so, he proclaims here, not only is slavery defeated, but war is over. The war is over. And it's defeated. So how does God bring us joy? One, no more enslaved. Two, no more war. No more war. Apply that to yourself. We live in a country where everything is war. Literally everything is war. We, you, you express a divergent opinion about something, and it's a war. Common war. War is something that is done in our hearts and done to each other, and we are violent towards each other. I think I, I watched uh, a friend recently say that he thought that these other friends should just die because of their stance on one issue. Well, they should just die. And I said, surely you don't mean that. Well, I don't mean die, die. I mean, you know, just kind of die. <laughs> We're so confused about what war is that we just, it's just normal language to us now. 
This is standard operating procedure. But we are in, at war all the time about something. And yet, the people of God do not live in war. War has ended. We no longer have to fight because our king has rescued us and redeemed us. We have been redeemed and rescued and are saved. War is done. And then finally, the final four here is for to us, a child is born. A son is given. It's a beautiful phrase of a child is born. A son is given. Throws us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Every birth of a child points to that promise of life. Every single birth of a child points to that promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. This is part of the reason that abortion is such an abomination to God. Because we're taking his message of redemption and we're throwing it on the ground and we're saying, we're, no! Every birth of a child points to Christ. Every single one of them. And so we have this picture throughout the Old Testament of a child being born. And Isaiah says, my wife is going to, in the last chapter, my wife is going to have a kid, and before my wife has a kid, Assyria is going to be wiped, is going to wipe out northern Israel. And God will visit justice on the wicked. And then he's got this meaning here in this text where he's looking out at the mountain, and he goes, but there's a child that will be born who will redeem the world who will save all that will trust in him, this child that will come and end war and will bring freedom from slavery, this child will come. So Isaiah is looking out at that mountain peak and he sees it and he sees his own child being born and he sees this child being born in the future and he goes, there is a Messiah coming who's going to rescue all people and we are on the other side of that peak looking back going, he has come. And we have had a great light shown on us. And in that, in that light being shown on us, we are completely exposed before the Lord as who we are. And it doesn't matter, not because we are good and God has, has picked us because we're all stars. No, it doesn't matter because He is good and He is King and He has decided to show His light on us and we still get to see Him. We are tossed out into the fire. We are rescued and redeemed, and this is beautiful and wonderful. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. This, this child is king, not president. You don't get to vote on Jesus. No one gets to choose. You don't get to vote on Jesus. He is king now. He was king before. And he'll be king at the end. He is the king. You don't vote on monarchy. They just are. He is king. He is God. He is amazing. 
and the government will be on his shoulders. In the same way he bore the cross on his shoulders in mercy for us, he bears the weight of the kingdom on his shoulders in mercy for us. This beautiful picture of the king, the government shall be on his shoulders. And we look back from our mountain peak, we look back on the first mountain peak and see Jesus carrying the cross. And we can't, you know, logically you think, well, what, what is this? Is this, is this the government on his shoulders? What does this mean? I mean, all I see back there is a cross. And then we look forward at the next mountain peak which we get glimpses of in Isaiah, Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel, pretty much every book of the Bible, we get, we get these glimpses of the kingdom to come. And we know that the government being put on his shoulders back there comes to fruition ahead. And we see this king come back and return. And in January, we're going to read through a book that talks about his return. And it's beautiful and amazing. And it's going to be, it's incredible to think about the fact that the government is born on his shoulders, bared up on his shoulders, and he's got these names that describe him. And look at these names. We've got, we've got one that, that there's some Hebrew juxtaposing here where, I don't know if you heard me reading it, but I separate the two. Wonderful and Counselor are two different names, I think. Now, Hebrew scholars, just to be fair, Hebrew scholars will go, well, no, they're one name, it's wonderful counselor, it's one thing. I think they're two. Having looked at it myself, I think it's two. First is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Not, not his, his attitude, not his descriptor. His very name is wonderful. This is like saying God is love. Not God is defined by love, but God defines love. Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is what is wonderful. He is what is wonderful. Not only is he what is wonderful, he's wonderful, but he's also counselor. He's counselor. So this great king and God comes as a child to redeem and rescue, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, and he is wonderful. He's where you get your sense of beauty and wonder and grace And he is counselor. He listens to you. Think about that for a minute. Just don't don't fly past that. He listens to you. I'm less than an ant when compared to the size of God. And he listens to me. Not only am I less than an ant, I'm also rebellious. Constantly. And he listens to me. I shake my fist in his face. And he listens to me. I don't listen to ants. I don't listen to the bugs that are in my house. I kill them. But God in tenderness and kindness picks me up and takes me into his kingdom. And then listens when I ask him for stuff. 
That's insane. But we, what? We own our what? We own our crazy here. God of the universe listens to you. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. He's wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is counselor. His name is mighty God. This is majestic God. God above all gods. This is great God. And how does he choose to show up? Child. Child. He shows up as a kid. Mighty God. Then everlasting father. I thought you said he was a child. Yes. And evidently father. Everlasting father. This is combined. Remember what we've been studying in the book of Hebrews. Everlasting, meaning that as long as he's alive, your salvation is secure. And guess what? He's everlasting, undying. And not only is he undying, but he's your dad. So, when I was young, I got in trouble often, and there was one time I distinctly remember getting in trouble at school, and my, my dad was volunteering somewhere in the school. I can't even remember where or why I got in trouble. I just know that I did. I probably threw a frog at somebody or something, but they, the, my dad was in the school, and they, he was volunteering for something, and they took me to the room he was volunteering, not knowing he was my dad. I remember what it was. He was teaching one of those classes that's an elective that they often bring doctors of reproductive issues in to teach. We called them sex ed. And he was teaching one of those classes, and my brother and I were both removed from that class. We were down the hall, and I had done something goofy, and the, the teacher in the class that I was decided, I'm going to take this boy to see Dr. Elkins, not realizing that my last name was Dr. Was, was Elkins. And so she walked me down the hall, and he was in the room, and she said, this young man needs to talk to you. And he said, you're right. He needs to speak with me right now. And I remember trembling in the face of my father, but knowing that though I was going to be in trouble, and though it was going to be bad, I knew that he was my dad, and he, I was loved. I want you to just imagine, you're taken before a judge, and you're down, your face is down, and you look up, and the judge who is standing above you, is not your earthly father. Not the father that so many of us have known. I had a great dad, just to be fair. I had an incredible father, beautiful picture of Christ to me. But I'm not foolish enough to say that everybody else did. So you stand before this judge and you look up, and it is not your earthly father, it is your heavenly father. And that Heavenly Father knows everything about you, has walked every step of your life with you, and looks at you, and when you see Him, you know that He has already forgiven. And though, as Micah says in Micah chapter 7, I will bear my iniquities before the Lord, for I have sinned against them, we can trust 
that this Father who looks upon us is only for our good. He's everlasting Father. And we look up and we see Him. And this Father takes us by the hand, tells us what we did wrong, and tells us we're forgiven, and wraps us in His arms and says, You're mine. Go and sin no more. And why can you sin no more? Because I already removed the yoke of slavery. I've removed the yoke of slavery. And I've ended all war. Why? Because I came as a child. And I walked this life. And I know your pain. And I know your struggle. I've walked through every single thing you have. And more. And this Father who stands everlasting with you. And then, he's the Prince of Peace. This is a throwback to Melchizedek. Right? The King of Salem. The King of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. It's his last title mentioned here. He is the Prince of Peace. No wonder that we can, it's no wonder that we can look to him for peace that surpasses all understanding, right? Because we have been redeemed and rescued and freed from sin, and he is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Again, remember, Isaiah is looking at a mountain range. And right now, when we read this, it doesn't seem to make sense. The increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, I look around and I go, there's a lot of ends. What do you mean there will be no end, Isaiah? People are ending every day. And they don't have peace, and they're not free. Isaiah, what are you talking about? Remember, Isaiah sees all the peaks at once. He's looking across. And he saw us looking back, and he sees this truth that Jesus Christ has landed on the earth, and light has shone, and we have been freed from sin, and we have rescued, and we no longer have to engage in war, and we are now free from the world system, and we have a, a mighty counselor, a, a wonderful, a, a God whose name is wonderful, whose name is counselor, whose mighty God, whose prince of peace, who's the everlasting father, and he looks out and he says, the government's going to be on his shoulders. Oh, and by the way, that increase will never end. So right now we're in the period of time where we are watching expectantly, like, like Habakkuk on the wall, like Haggai, watching and waiting for the Lord to answer. And he will one day land and answer. And there will be no decrease ever. But his government will only increase and grow. And there will be no end on the throne of David. This king will live forever and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Oh, Christian, when we struggle to see, when we look around at this world and we see everything's broken, be reminded that your king was king yesterday, and he's king today, and he'll be king tomorrow. And be faithful to remind the world, he's coming.
coming back. I told this a few times. I was asked recently about the issues in our country at this moment, what my opinions are about them. And I looked at the person that asked me and I said, listen, I have a king who is coming back. If you don't know him, you're in big trouble. I said, I have a king who is coming back and you need to know him. And all the problems in this world just point me to, to remembering that. That my king is the king, not a king. And he will return. And when he returns, you'd better trust in him.